Look, for those of you who don't know, um, you know, we do four uh, projects a year, art, architecture, fashion, film and design. And at the moment, we've got art, obviously, inside and architecture here. Beautiful uh, architectural installation here that's had so much attention. Um, and uh, so those are the four projects. We do a I think, a beautiful catalogue for each project. So there's a wonderful publication. And we try and keep them uh, very affordable. So you don't, um, you know, you're not paying even for the cost of the publication when you buy them. And uh, But we do have all the content and images of the publication free online as well. That's probably why we don't sell many, because <laughs> free... <laughs> But still, there is a generation, my generation, and perhaps one below, that loves having books and having books in bookshelves. So you've got options there. And then attached to um, the projects and the publications, we have a really full um, program of culture and ideas. We started off nine years ago when SCAF started. We had... Um, how many did we have? Nine cultural ideas in the whole year. We had Margaret Throsby uh, did three for uh, three projects. We only had three at the beginning and then grew to four. And Caroline Bohm did three projects. You remember, Sophie. And then I usually did a panel discussion uh, for each of the three projects. So there were three people, three projects, uh, and nine in total. And somehow we found that there was such a demand, it's not as evident today, but there was such a demand for these um, talks and workshops and seminars and panel discussions that I felt, well, you know, we're not doing enough of them. And so we've really intensified it. I don't know. Sophie, do, do you know how many we've done this year? Or even at a guess, maybe 30. So from nine to 30. I think that's probably a fair guess. And uh, what we decided to do, and this may explain the slightly smaller crowd today, is we decided to do a series of films that related to art and architecture and fashion, film or design. The last two, this is our number three, the last two um, had had never been screened before. So you could not see them anywhere. That was the film on Johnny Walker. Was anybody here for that? No. And come in. There, I said there were people who come late. There's a chair here. Um, or, or sit wherever you like, uh, if, if you want to sit with somebody. Uh, the Johnny Walker. Come on, come through. Um, Johnny Walker, and that had only ever been screened in Sweden in a museum situation, so no public screening. It was a fabulous film. And the one la last week, uh, Sophie, last week was Uli Sig. Did anybody come for that? Yes, this was a very private screening because the distributors uh, want to uh, put this film, submit this film for many film festivals, and they felt that if it got screened outside of the film festivals, then they wouldn't have a chance. Well, we had, a, you know, 50 people. But Cutie and the Boxer, which Melanie is going to, Eastburn is going to introduce in a minute, and I'll introduce Melanie in a minute. Cutie and the Boxer has been on the screen. It's, uh, Melanie will tell you, it's uh, won awards, it's not a new film like 
like Uli Sig and Johnny. Um, I think you can even get it on the on the uh, on various platforms on your uh, computers and so on. But how? So this is our first experiment at showing a film that has been screened. And, uh, you know, I thought that we would make it work, and we have, but uh, there are 49 registered for today, and there are about 20 of you or 21 of you. Um, I, I think people do then feel, oh, well, I can watch it anyway. But what we're trying to offer here is, a is an introduction by somebody who is an expert and a discussion afterwards, which, of course, you can't get in a cinema unless you go to the film festival, which is only once a year. So uh, that uh, tells you. And then next week we're doing Peggy Guggenheim, which has also been screened. Has anybody here seen the Peggy film? Yes, it's a very good film. And uh, Craig... Craig Judd is, is introducing it. He's a wonderful uh, curator, as is Melanie. Um, and the discussion afterwards, obviously, gives you a chance to voice your opinions and also share your own experiences. So let's see how these go, these films that are not... Uh, not that are available. Let's we'll see how it goes and make our assessments afterwards. Now, to introduce Melanie, as most of you know, I don't know if you do know, she's um, recently arrived back in Sydney as senior curator of Asian art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It's a very important position, this, and particularly since Sohania Raphael is going, it's even more important. Melanie, you've become all our hopes are pinned on you. Um, no pressure. Um, um, and um, But Melanie, I've known for many, many years since she was a very young curator because she worked uh, for what was then Sherman Galleries. This is a long time ago uh, when we were in Hargrave Street uh, before she left for Cambodia. Um, and at that time, going to Cambodia was quite a big step. It is now, but at that time, even more so. I've only been there recently, last year, and it's a, it's an eye-opener. You feel very privileged to, to live where you do and to have the kind of history Australia has, apart from if you're looking at it from an Aboriginal perspective, obviously it looks different. But um, the Cambodians generally have gone through a hellish time and uh, not all that long ago, and most of the art world has just been wiped out completely. Over total generations, always, almost no one left. Uh, and the younger generation lives with the trauma of what has happened, and it's in the 70s. It's well within our, not everybody here, but most of our lifetimes. So uh, Melanie spent time there. She might, you might like to just share two words on that, Melanie, and then came back to be curator at the. She did some st further studies at the Australian National University, and eventually became a very important curator at the National Gallery in Canberra. And how long ago did you move to Sydney, Mel? Two months ago. So literally just come back to Sydney after all these years away. Um, I feel as though she's come home. Uh, our connection, as I say, is an, a long-standing one. And she's here to introduce the film. And all of this goes on podcast. So please um, participate afterwards. Well, thank you so much, Jean. It's really, uh, for me, very exciting to be here. And it is like coming home, coming back to Sydney, but also coming back to, um, well, it's SCAF now, but, you know, to an old home in of, uh, when it was Sherman Galleries a long time ago. So it is quite a privilege, I find, to be here. And I'm very thrilled 
This particular film, I wonder, have any of you seen it? No. Okay, great. So we can save all discussion for the end, but I'll give you a little bit of uh, introduction to it. It's a I found it an absolutely fascinating film. It's about um, uh, two Japanese artists living in New York. And um, it's Ushio Shinohara, the boxer, and Noriko Shinohara, his wife, who's cutie. And um, I have some notes that I'll get to if we need them, but I'll try without. So Ushio is a, was a very well-known Japanese artist. And he started really, he, he was born in 1932 and so grew up in the kind of Second World War period and the American occupation of Japan after the Second World War until 1952. Um, and in the late 50s and early 60s became a very kind of uh, experimental artist who tried all kinds of things. He's a very um, strong sense of his self and importance. And so he tried a whole lot of things. And one of the things, we've got some images which we might show of a little bit about, just a little bit of background for him. Um, but he, one of, the, one of his early sort of dramatic things he did were these action paintings that were boxing related. And he, sort of a pre-punk punk, so this is in 1960 that he's looking like this. Um, they're going a little bit quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but just to give a bit of a sense of, of him and the drama of, of him. And so he started with these boxing paintings and just quickly changed through lots and lots of different art styles at different times. So he, with a whole lot of other artists, of course, in the early 60s were very interested in um, American art, particularly they, they formed this uh, Japanese Neo-Dada group, which you can see here in Ginza, and then there's another one of them wrapped up with the Neo-Dada <laughs> advertising. Um, so it's so really, really stylish stuff, but it went through really quickly. So by this lasted about six months in 1960, and so this is sort of kept changing quickly and more and more of this action painting. And he considered his action painting much more real than something like Jackson Pollock that he considered was a little bit contrived and there was a little bit of time to think and a bit careful, whereas his was very natural. And he did come out of that generation that had had Gutai and things like this before. So this is in 1956, the electric dress. Um, but he tried to break away and was interested in American pop art for a period. Again, just going through stages. And he became quite interested in Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns. And looked at images in magazines because, of course, that was the way to get information, was through publications, American and Japanese publications. And he started to copy works of art that he had seen in magazines in black and white reproductions and make them in his own 3D interpretation of them. Uh, so this is his interpretation of Rauschenberg's Coca-Cola plan made, so the colours are different, all of those things, because he didn't have the colours, he just sort of worked it out and used Japanese bottles, and he made lots of different versions of this at different times, and quite recently there was an exhibition that they were shown together, which was pretty great. That was, um, I think it was at MoMA? Yeah, I think it was Dorian Chung's one, a few years ago when he was still there, um, but would have been really fabulous to see. 
So he went through this stage, and one of the funny things that happened was Rauschenberg, of course, was also interested in Japanese art and had heard about this imitation pop art in Japan. And so when he visited Japan, he wanted to meet Shinohara, so he did. And Shinohara asked him if he would mind if he continued to copy his work. Rauschenberg said, fine. And <laughs> then the next day there was a seminar where they were sort of a panel discussion together and Shinohara brought out his Coca-Cola plan copies and did a few other things. Mostly they, it was supposed to be 20 questions to Bob Rauschenberg, but mostly there was just um, making art and you know, strange awkwardness, but it was kind of a great event. And after that, though, he kind of started to lose his interest in American art. And you'll see they'll come up again eventually that there are some slides of his work that he started to do in about 65, where he discovered uh, Yoshitoshi, a Japanese printmaker from the late 19th century. And Yoshitoshi made a series called... 28 Famous Murders in Verse, something like that. Uh, he often did series and often very gruesome, horrific imagery, terribly dramatic and still incredibly graphic and uh, powerful now. And they're not in this murder thing, but uh, on the 20th of August, a show of Yoshitoshi's 100 Aspects of the Moon will open at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It's, it's not gruesome, but it was the gruesome that, of course, inspired Shinohara. You might not be too surprised. Um, and so he started to look at Japanese art and incorporate, instead of this kind of messy uh, pop art that he had been doing, very slick, perfectly created works of art with you know, machine cut, using machine cut acrylic and other things to keep this really perfect production. Um, and so then he became, he's had this whole I'm tired of America thing. And there was an, a big exhibition came from MoMA to Tokyo that was called New American, pa 20 Years of American Painting in 1966, around the same time uh, as he was doing his Japanese work and had just started to become quite renowned for that and had critical success, although not great financial success. But he, he wasn't shy, and so he wrote an autobiography that was serialised, and under American art that lost its glory, he said about the show, American art, this vivid monster, appeared before our eyes only through journals until a couple of years ago. It seemed as if American art had been marching towards the glorious prairie of the rainbow and oasis of the future, carrying all the world's expectations of modern painting. However, what an odd sight this digest of 20 years offers. Jasper Johns was not our glorious saviour. <laughs> the closer I got to Americans who came to Japan, the further their glory receded into the distance. So he's terribly confident with his opinions. But then, in 1969, he applied for a Rockefeller Fellowship to go to America for a year, and he went, and he's still there. <laughs> um, and so then the other important player in this film is Noriko Shinohara, who's his partner, and she's 21 years younger. And she went to America in 1972 from Tokyo as an art student and supported by her parents, and she was 19 years old and within six months had met Shinohara and fallen in love, a little bit out of favour with her parents, um, and her life had changed. And she's a very interesting artist because 
it's very hard to find information about her. There's so little written about her and it's really around the time that this film came out in an exhibition that you'll see being prepared in the film that her work started to have some sort of prominence uh, in the story. So it's a very, it's an interesting thing and an interesting time. So while he left Japan in the late 60s and wasn't part of any of that 70s um, sort of minimalist, photography-based, black and white, um, you know, fine silver gelatin images of just the detail of something or a little bit of liquid. He wasn't there for that. And she was, and so she has a little bit of influence from some of that. Whereas he looked at the sort of minimalism and conceptual art of the late 60s and early 70s and just went the other way. And so when you see his motorbike pictures that come up with the really gaudy colours and the motorbikes made from uh, bits of found material and richly painted, that's what he made when he went to America. And then he continues to make that kind of, of work really against what was seen as the, what was popular and powerful in the 70s. And her work is much more sort of subtle and interior sort of looking and his is very out there so you'll get a really strong sense of their personalities and who they are and what they do I will be very interested to hear what you think at the end okay, so I think enjoy <laughs>
I think what for me, I think it was a wonderful, wonderful film. So I really do. And, um, you know, there were two characters in it I knew personally, and I'm sure you do too, Melanie. One was Ethan Cohen, who is a New York dealer, that first show they had, and the other was Alexandra Munro, uh, whose uh, Scream Against the Sky show I saw in Yokohama in the mid-'90s, wonderful, wonderful show. But I think what it, what it did for me was, you know, because I've been on the uh, gallerist side of the equation and perhaps via Bill Wright, I learned more than I would otherwise have learned what it felt like to be on the artist side of the equation. I think I felt so, um, in a way, rooted in the artist's perspective in this film. And those gallerists came in, you know, and all dressed up and uh, looking at the work and peering over and murmuring X, Y and Z. Um, and you just felt how needy these two people were, that even $3,000 was going to change their lives for maybe two, three months so it, it really brought that home to me and I think it was very well done because all the gallerists and the Japanese person, gallerist whom I didn't know, they were all very pleasant and very thoughtful and very polite, but still they weren't living the life, you know. <laughs> it was a hard life. So that was my impression. The sun and the gallerists, yes. The same. I felt like all the main curators. The main curators. Oh, and the, the, the good news is the Guggenheim did buy two paintings. Oh, good. So it's okay. <laughs> but I was very worried about that. I had to check because there is that awful feeling, feeling. where you're working with people's lives and no. but you have to trying to build the best collection or best show or whatever it is mm. that you're doing and it can't always be well it feels like it can't be so personal but it's mm. it, it was quite heartbreaking to see the other side. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to ask you a question. Do you think she would have been more successful without him? It's a good I don't know. What do you think? I really well, don't know. I just, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not at all skilled or knowledgeable about art, but when I look at her drawings, they're so beautiful and she's so talented. And, and not to say that he's not, but she had to put up with so much from him, mm. you know. I mean, it's really hard to say. And, you know, from although he's been very well known and talked about and in important exhibitions over the time of his career... You can see it, he's, it's never brought him financial success or security. So it's very hard to know what would have happened for her otherwise. Or would she have gone back to Japan? Or we just, you know, it's... Think. She's a more skilled artist, though, in your, sort of in your opinion, sorry. Like, different styles. Different style. I mean, really a very different sort of thing. Yeah. Was it Noriko's first exhibition with... The husband, and has she ever done any other exhibition before? Yeah, I couldn't find out very clearly. I think she's had two or three exhibitions, as uh, so you know, not solo, but I, but I think that was the first one with him. But she doesn't seem to have been exhibited widely, and there now is a more of a market for her work and more interest. But I think it was really brought about by this film that brought more interest and attention to her. I think it's 2014? 15. 15. So it's quite recent. Yeah. It's earlier than that. 
Okay. I just wanted to know how much um, his, which I thought they were fantastic, the boxing paintings were my favourite, mm. how much they are and were they on paper or they on canvas or were they on both mediums? Oh, how much they are for price? Like now, like uh, what they're worth. I actually work, haven't like checked in, the market for okay. his work. I mean, I would imagine if you could get the 1960 original, that would uh, be very valuable. Yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know. I mean, certainly uh, one of the images that we had early on in just for preliminary were, was a performance of boxing painting that he did at the Getty Museum. So he still does them quite often, as you saw, but I, I don't know about the prices. You do know? At the Hong Kong Art Fair um, in March, which is this very big, as many of you would know, Asian, you know, it's the sort of hot art fair in Asia, I went past a stand and I saw um, what I thought was a Gutai painting, but it turned out to be Shinohara, and I asked, and I, I'm very, I'm good at remembering names, but terrible at numbers, so my memory is about 50,000 US dollars, but... Uh, and I thought that was uh, one from the early period, and I thought, God, that's that's really worthwhile because it's a historic thing, and you know, uh, I did. And then I found out it was much more recent, like almost now. And then it felt less interesting because you know he was an innovator, and then uh, people continue with the same. Um, in the same mode, and it's not as interesting 40 years later, <laughs> yes. So uh, my memory uh, is about 50,000 for a very recent one, US dollars. Mm. Yes, which makes sense because that 1960 or 61 would be, would be much, much more. And I don't... At least, yeah. Yes. Yeah, but those new ones, I think he started again in the 90s. I think there was quite a break, but so they are all very recent. Still, he is getting older now, so you wonder how long he can go on bashing those. You do wonder, yes. <laughs> yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. Yes, it's really quite. Yes, I've, I've got the. I've got the. I've got a box. Hang on. <laughs> so it's got. Oh no, in 2014. So it's got an Academy Award nomination for Best Documentary Feature. It's got the Best Director of 2013 Sundance. Official Selection Melbourne International Film Festival, Official Selection Sydney International Film Festival, and Official Selection New Zealand. That's all that's on this box. Mm. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> and it was, the, I think, the filmmaker's first film. He was terribly young when they started filming. They did it for over quite a few years. Um, and she sort of changed his style quite a bit during the process. What I did see was that the animation of her drawings, Noriko's drawings, and the boxing scene at the end were both her idea. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, I think we'll stop. I want you to thank Melanie, really. She gave us a lot of insight.